August 1486, Toledo, Castile. Two men stood before a tribunal in a dimly lit room. Both were shackled and had nooses around their necks, unfitting adornments for two priests of the Catholic Church. But the tribunal also consisted of men from the church. They were chosen to root out heresy throughout Castile, and they weren't selected by the Pope. But by Queen Isabella. The accused standing before the tribunal were charged with Judaizing. Despite having converted to Catholicism, they were rumored to still secretly be practicing Judaism. And in the eyes of the tribunal, that was a serious offense to the church. The trial was anything but fair, and within minutes they were declared guilty. Their punishment? Death. The condemned were stripped of their priestly robes and ridiculed by their fellow clerics. Then they were forced to wear a San Benito, or robe of atonement, and a carassa, a dunce cap. The condemned priests were then led outside the building into a courtyard and fastened to a wooden stake. Minutes later, both were engulfed in flames. Two more victims of the Spanish Inquisition, a 300-year institution created at the behest of Queen Isabella of Castile. Welcome to Dictators, a ParCast original. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Dictators for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. Today we conclude our look into the reign of Queen Isabella I. From 1474 to 1504, She ruled over the Kingdom of Castile with her husband, Ferdinand II of Aragon, as consort. Last week, we explored Isabella's unlikely rise to the throne, and how, upon taking power, she did what no man was able to accomplish, reclaim Granada from the Moorish Muslims. This week, we'll examine her role as the primary architect of the Spanish Inquisition, one of history's worst examples of religious persecution, while simultaneously shifting the age of discovery into overdrive by financing Christopher Columbus's voyages to the West. Coming up, we'll continue our dive into Isabella's reign. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money. Up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Money Maker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. On January 2nd, 1492, 40-year-old Queen Isabella of Castile made history. 
For nearly 800 years, the Muslim Moors had controlled parts of the Iberian Peninsula. Now, she was accepting the surrender of their final stronghold, Granada. For the dogmatically Catholic Isabella, conquering the Muslims wasn't just a victory for Castile or the Iberian Peninsula as a whole, but Christendom. She firmly believed that she was on a mission to spread Christianity. And part of that mission was to protect it from heretics and infidels at all costs. The Muslims whom she allowed to remain in Granada as her subjects were about to experience what all costs meant. And as Isabella fought her war against the Muslims out in the open, she had been fighting another holy war in the shadows. The Inquisition wasn't a Spanish invention. The Romans established the practice as a means to force confessions. For centuries, popes or kings used them to investigate heresy among the Christian faithful. And no group faced more scrutiny for these perceived slights than the Jews. Jews had inhabited the Iberian Peninsula since the Roman Empire. Many thrived throughout the region, establishing themselves as prominent businessmen, doctors, and philosophers. And they lived in relative peace. But when the Roman Empire fell, anti-Semitism rose. Many Christians hated just how prosperous the Jews had become. Consequently, Christian kings forced Jews to convert to Christianity or be banished from the peninsula. When the Muslims conquered the region in the 700s, Many Jews helped them defeat the Christians, believing that life might improve. The Christians, however, never forgot what they perceived as the ultimate betrayal. In the century leading up to Isabella's birth, a new wave of Christian anti-Semitism took hold of the peninsula. And in 1391 and 1411, these pogroms resulted in forced conversion. This gave rise to the converso, a label used for converted Jews. And as time passed, conversos climbed the social ladder. Some even became the confessors to the monarchy. But some conversos continued to practice aspects of their Jewish faith and heritage, such as recognizing the Jewish Sabbath or adhering to Jewish dietary restrictions. Christians began to suspect that conversos weren't genuine converts. Even worse, they believed these crypto-Jews were using Christianity to advance their own careers. Something needed to be done to preserve Christianity from traitors. The seeds for the Inquisition were planted by Alonso de Ojeda, a Dominican in Seville. When the Queen visited Seville in 1477, halfway through her war with Portugal, Ojeda pleaded with her to do something about the conversos. Ojeda whispered in the queen's ear for nearly a year, attempting to convince her that these secret Jews posed a significant threat to the purity of Christianity. They needed rooting out before poisoning the clergy. After a brief internal investigation, Isabella agreed to seek a papal bull from Pope Sixtus IV. He signed the bull in 1478, which granted Isabella and Ferdinand the right to appoint inquisitors. Two years later, Tomás de Torquemada, a Dominican friar, was chosen to lead the Inquisition. His actions would set a precedent for nearly 300 years of religious persecution. 
The Inquisition's mission was simple. Stop the spread of heresy. Technically, this meant any suspected false Christian. But the first targets were conversos, those of Jewish heritage. Seville was the first city to see the Inquisitors establish their holy office, as the Inquisition came to be known. And within months of its creation, guilty heretics were being burned at the stake. On February 6, 1481, six people were executed in Seville. The message was clear. If you were found guilty, death was the likely outcome. Many conversos fled Seville in 1481. Others came forward and confessed their sins with the hope of receiving a lighter punishment. Some of these so-called lighter punishments included walking around naked or wearing a pointed hat meant as an embarrassing indicator that a person had faced the holy office. However, confession was a tricky thing. While some confessed willingly, others were forced to do so through the use of torture. And before long, torture became synonymous with the Inquisition. The Iron Maiden, the Rack, water torture, and the breaking wheel are all said to have been utilized. But contrary to popular belief, torture wasn't ubiquitous. According to historian Henry Kamen, though permitted by the instructions of 1484, in the early years, torture seems to have been considered superfluous and was seldom used. Abundant testimony from Edicts of Grace and from witnesses was more than sufficient. Edicts of Grace were essentially a proclamation of possible heresies. When an inquisitor came to town, he would read the edict and promise that those who sincerely confessed would receive forgiveness. It was enough motivation for people to come forward on their own and avoid having their limbs stretched. Even though the mission was to exterminate heresy from Christianity, there appeared to be an extra motivational factor, money. According to writer Kristen Downey, Pope Sixtus IV gave Isabella permission to collect any goods or money confiscated by the Inquisition, with the money going to the royal treasury. This meant that the Inquisition was entirely funded by those deemed guilty. Not only was the Holy Office getting rich, so was the monarchy itself. This put an even bigger target on conversos and older Jewish citizens. Many of them were in the business of money lending, tax collecting, or running some of the more prosperous agricultural businesses that supplied food to the people. But many conversos worked beyond Spain's business sector. Many found their calling as priests or friars. By the mid-1480s, they were also being investigated as fake Christians. And one particular investigation led to scandal throughout Castile. The town of Guadalupe is home to one of Spain's holiest shrines, a statue of the Virgin Mary allegedly carved by St. Luke. By the time Isabella became queen, the city was an important pilgrimage site for Catholics and many of the town's clergy were conversos. Once the Inquisition was underway, rumors against these converso priests suddenly started to circulate throughout Guadalupe. These rumors claimed that they weren't real Christians and that they gave preferential treatment to Jewish citizens. 
1485, a special investigation looked into these supposed heretical priests. One of them, Friar Diego de Marchena, allegedly continued to practice Judaism himself, taught other Jews how to pass as Christians, and told people that he had never been baptized. But Marchena wasn't alone. All 130 friars in the diocese were investigated. Of the 130 friars, 20 were censured and one was given a life sentence in prison. Diego de Marchena was tortured and burned at the stake. According to Downey, the church tried to keep the investigation of Guadalupe a secret. They feared that conversos had infected the monastery. But it's exceedingly difficult to cover up the investigation of 130 priests. Queen Isabella herself was aware of the Guadalupe incident. According to Downey, she ordered that the money seized from conversos in the town should be used to build a hospital. The 1480s were merely the beginning. Many details of the program remain unknown, including the number of people who suffered during Isabella's reign. For centuries, it was believed that hundreds of thousands of people were tried and executed during the Inquisition. Some historians had claimed that by the time it ended in the early 1800s, a million people had died. But recent studies suggest that number is wildly conflated. In 2004, historian Agostino Borromeo authored a 700-page report claiming that the tribunals tried only 125,000 people, and of those, roughly 1% were sentenced to death. Although the numbers may be lower than initially perceived, it doesn't negate the fact that the blood spilled was a result of Queen Isabella's decisions. It's possible that Isabella saw the Inquisition as wholly justified. Catholicism was her bedrock. It dictated almost every decision she made. And whether she felt any kind of remorse is entirely unknown. However, we can easily infer that she was not only committed to its existence, but had a desire to see it expand. In March 1492, just two months after reclaiming Granada, both Isabella and Ferdinand suddenly announced that all Jews living in Castile and Aragon were to either convert to Christianity or leave forever, an edict known as the Alhambra Decree. Though Isabella would claim the idea came to Ferdinand in a dream, she set the plan in motion. The deal she and Ferdinand made once she became queen was that she had the final say on matters in Castile. Whether it was from the success of the Inquisition or the victory over Granada, it was clear to her that she was the warrior queen of Christendom. It was her mission to not only secure Christianity in Castile and Granada, but to spread it. So when an Italian explorer returned to Isabella with reports of discovering a new land, she was convinced of her charge. She was going to spread Catholicism to the new world. Coming up, Isabella sends the age of discovery into overdrive. Hey, Parcasters, looking for a more lighthearted listen? then I've got the perfect podcast for you. The new Spotify original from Parcast called Incredible Feats. 
Hosted by comedian and podcaster Dan Cummins, Incredible Feats is a daily show spotlighting true accounts of mind-blowing physical strength, mental focus, and bizarre behavior. Join Dan every weekday as he goes behind the scenes and into the achievements of everyone from freedivers and body modifiers to ultramarathoners and moms. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to the story. 1492 would prove to be one of the most critical years in Isabella of Castile's life and in world history. With Granada reclaimed and the Jews expelled from the kingdom, it was time for her to expand her reach. During the war with Granada, an Italian explorer had come to Isabella with a voyage proposal so crazy that many around the court did not take him seriously. Many believed that his idea of heading west to find an easier path to the east was absurd. But Isabella disagreed. So, in the spring of 1492, not long after the Alhambra Decree, she gave Cristobal Colon, a.k.a. Christopher Columbus, the financial backing to sail west. It was an expedition seven years in the making. Exploration was in Queen Isabella's blood. Her Portuguese grandmother, the one who raised her as a child, was cousin to the famed explorer Henry the Navigator. Isabella always had an interest in making Castile a leader in exploration. The problem was that she was too busy at war with her Portuguese cousins and then with the Muslims to find the time. But just because she had wars to win didn't mean she wasn't thinking about the future. And when Columbus came to court, she knew she had found her man. But at the time, she wasn't ready to commit. The first time Columbus pitched his idea of finding a quicker route to India and China was in mid-1486. According to Downey, Columbus proclaimed that his expedition would make trade quicker and thus replenish her dwindling treasury thanks to the war in Granada. More importantly, he capitalized on her well-known faith. Columbus claimed that the potential riches he could bring in from trade would be enough to fund a crusade to reclaim Jerusalem which for the past 200 years had been under Muslim control. Isabella was naturally interested, but she knew that she couldn't afford to fund such an expedition in the middle of the war. However, Isabella was fully aware that Columbus had pitched the same idea to the Portuguese before he came to her. She didn't want Columbus to go back to them. So she decided to not only finance his trip, but paid him to stay in Castile until she had the funds together. Columbus was forced to wait nearly seven years. In that time, he feared that Isabella was never going to actually keep her word. But then Granada fell in January of 1492. The war was over and Isabella was free to finally invest in her desire to explore the world. After a few more months of waiting, Isabella gave him the green light. She gave Columbus roughly two million maravedis, or about one million dollars today, 90 men, and three ships to sail west. 
Writer Kristen Downey notes that Isabella wanted to make it clear that from the very moment she okayed the venture, that it was a Castilian expedition. Driving the point home was that of the 90 men on board, 85 were Castilian, four were Italian, and only one was Portuguese. Not a single sailor hailed from Aragon, her husband's home country. On August 3, 1492, the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria set sail from Palos and into the unknown. Within a month, many among the crew believed that Columbus was a charlatan, leading them all to their deaths. But then, on October 12th, a sailor aboard the Pinta said the words they so desperately wanted to hear. Land. The three ships anchored somewhere in the Bahamas. Once on land, the crew was entirely enchanted by two things, the beautifully lush setting and the indigenous people who inhabited it. Right away, Columbus saw the Taino, the first indigenous people he encountered, as potential slaves, noting in his journal that they ought to make good servants. And in a letter to Isabella, he promised to bring her slaves without number. It was a proposition he would come to regret. For two and a half months, Columbus Island hopped and declared land in the name of Ferdinand and Isabella, including Haiti. At the same time, he took note of the gold and jewels around the necks of the indigenous people. He became convinced that this untouched land was full of riches to be mined. Finally, on January 2nd, 1493, Columbus sailed back to Castile, leaving a group of men behind to colonize and search for gold. Columbus returned to Castile in March 1493 to a hero's welcome. The Spanish monarchs and the rest of Europe believed that Columbus had discovered a new world, though recent evidence has shown that the Norse sailed to present-day Newfoundland 500 years earlier. The discovery reaffirmed Isabella's belief in her destiny to spread Catholicism. In fact, in the weeks following Columbus's return, she commissioned more voyages to the New World. One of the critical elements was converting the indigenous people to Catholicism. Surprisingly, forced conversion wasn't on the table. For his second voyage, which set sail in September 1493, Isabella instructed Columbus to treat the said Indians very well and lovingly and abstain from doing them any injury and that anyone who did treat them poorly, Columbus was to punish them severely. It is unclear exactly why she viewed the indigenous people differently than Muslims or Jews. Perhaps she didn't see them as a threat to Christendom. Maybe she wanted to convert them before Jewish or Muslim explorers made it to the New World. But for the time being, Isabella knew she had a problem. As news of Columbus's voyage spread, the threat of other kingdoms staking their claims became a cause for concern. Isabella knew she needed to bolster as much support for land rights as possible. Only one man could help her. Rodrigo Borgia, now known throughout Europe as Pope Alexander VI. Borgia had been vital in helping Isabella stake her claim to the throne, forging alliances with Castilian nobles. Plus, he was Spanish, so he would always have some bias towards Castile and Aragon. 
However, Borgia was ridiculously corrupt. It was well known that he had broken his vow of chastity and fathered at least five children with his mistress. Even more offensive, rumors quickly spread that he bribed his way to the head of the church. Such stories made the pious Isabella cringe at the harm Borgia was doing to the sanctity of the church. But she knew that she needed his help with her claim to this new world. So, for the time being, she was willing to put her morals aside. Early in 1493, Isabella asked Borgia to declare ownership of the discovered lands. In May, Borgia issued four papal bulls that gave Isabella precisely what she wanted. Better yet, the bulls entrusted Isabella with conquering the new territories in the name of Catholicism. To keep the kingdoms of Castile and Aragon as a close ally, Borgia had given Isabella half of the world. Of course, not everyone was happy with the papal bulls. The Portuguese felt they had just as much claim to undiscovered lands as the Spanish. Who was the Pope to decide that half the unknown globe belonged to Isabella? Isabella knew another war with Portugal wasn't in anyone's best interest. It could financially derail her plans for more expeditions. So, she decided to take a diplomatic approach. In June 1494, Isabella and King Joao of Portugal signed the Treaty of Tordesillas. Under the terms, the globe was divided at 370 leagues west of the Cape Verde Islands. Everything east of the line went to Portugal, namely the coast of Africa and parts of present-day Brazil, and everything west of the line went to Castile. Isabella made out like a bandit. With this agreement, she staked her claim on practically all of America. It was a defining moment in her reign and the rapidly expanding Spanish Empire. Since proclaiming herself queen 20 years earlier, Isabella had done more than any other ruler in history. Now she had permission to fulfill her mission and spread Catholicism to the rest of the unknown world. Nothing could stand in her way. That is, until reports from Columbus's second voyage began to trickle back to Castile. And as news of atrocities against the indigenous people reached Isabella's ears, she knew that it would not only put her immediate future in jeopardy, but her legacy as well. Coming up, Isabella looks to secure her legacy and put her children in power. Now, back to the story. In June 1494, 43-year-old Queen Isabella of Castile ruled the world. After Columbus announced his discovery of new lands, Isabella quickly made deals that solidified her right to claim as much undiscovered land as possible for herself. Between the Pope's papal bulls and a treaty with Portugal, she seemingly owned half the globe. Twenty years into her reign, she was at her political zenith. The Spanish Inquisition continued to purge heretics throughout the kingdom, tens of thousands of Jews had either left the peninsula or converted, and riches from an entirely unmolested land were soon going to make their way into her coffers. Isabella was on the cusp of turning her relatively small kingdom into a world superpower. All that remained was to strengthen her family's future 
through arranged marriages for her children. But then, Christopher Columbus returned from his second voyage, forcing Isabella to put the matchmaking plans on hold. It wasn't because she couldn't do two things at once, but because Columbus had directly disobeyed an order, and he needed to be dealt with. By the time he returned in 1496, Isabella realized she'd made a mistake in trusting him to lead her divine mission for the New World. On this second voyage, Columbus and the Castilians landed near present-day Puerto Rico. Right away, they made contact with the Caribbean people, reportedly a much fiercer tribe of indigenous people than the Taino. Relations between the two quickly soured when the Castilians discovered what appeared to be cooked human flesh in the Caribbean encampments. Even today, there is still a debate over whether or not the Caribbees were cannibals. Some scholars posit that the uncooked flesh was for ceremonial purposes rather than consumption. Regardless, both sides became aggressive and fighting ensued. And because the Castilians possessed far superior weaponry, the Caribbees didn't stand a chance. Throughout the next two years of the voyage, Columbus wreaked havoc on the various indigenous tribes as they island hopped across the Caribbean. Witnessing the atrocities was Bartolome de las Casas, a colonizer turned historian and champion of indigenous people. He was disgusted at how petty slights by the natives, such as theft, resulted in harsh and brutal reactions from the Castilians, like whippings or executions. At times, Columbus ordered the punishments himself. Other times, he looked the other way when his men maimed or murdered. Las Casas described such acts of violence as just the beginning of the flow of blood, which was to flow so copiously from then on all over the island. As if slaughtering the indigenous people wasn't enough, Columbus thoroughly thumbed his nose at Isabella by sending hundreds of slaves back to Castile. According to Downey, Isabella was furious when she heard about the slaves. So furious that she ordered them to be returned to the New World at once. Sadly, many died before they made it back home. This was mostly due to diseases that they were unaccustomed to, such as smallpox. Though the indigenous people did get some revenge, they introduced the Castilians to syphilis which would spread through Europe like wildfire. When Columbus finally returned to Castile at the beginning of 1496, 45-year-old Queen Isabella had grown tired of the Italian, to some extent. Even though she financed two more of his voyages in later years, it was evident that she didn't view him as her lead explorer anymore. Instead, throughout the rest of the 1490s and earlier 1500s, she put her trust in other, more respectable adventurers. With her trust in more capable explorers solidified, she knew that it was time to finally secure her children's future. With each passing year, her empire grew bigger and wealthier. She didn't want her children to go through the chaos she experienced to secure the throne. The time had come for Queen Isabella to embrace her duty as a matchmaker. As a mother, Isabella refused to coddle her five children. 
Instead of parading them around and pampering them, she raised all five to be strong leaders. She had to. After Princess Isabel was born in 1470, her four other surviving children were all raised during times of war. They needed to learn the harsh realities of life during such turbulent times. To that end, each grew up understanding their selected mates weren't just to form strategic allies for their mother, but secure their place as future leaders in Castile and beyond. First up, of course, was Princess Isabel. Princess Isabel was no longer the heir to the throne because of her brother, Prince Juan. However, Queen Isabella knew that Princess Isabel still played a vital role when it came to peace with Portugal. In November 1490, Princess Isabel married Prince Afonso, heir to the Portuguese throne. Unfortunately, even though the match was perfect, the marriage didn't last long. Less than a year later, Prince Alphonse died in a horseback riding accident. Princess Isabel fell into a deep depression. Worse yet, she refused to remarry, which frustrated the queen to no end. But Queen Isabella wasn't going to let her daughter's depression stand in her way. In the meantime, the queen worked on the rest of her brood, and not long after Columbus came back from his disastrous second voyage, Isabella had put together a package deal with a powerful European family, the Habsburgs. In 1496, Princess Joanna married Philip, Duke of Burgundy. Less than a year later, Prince Juan, the heir apparent to Castile, married Philip's sister, Margaret. On paper, it was a match Queen Isabella could only dream of. Should both marriages produce healthy heirs, the impact on world events could be historic. As if Queen Isabella couldn't have been any happier, Princess Isabel had finally agreed to remarry. It wasn't easy, but eventually, the princess accepted King Manuel of Portugal's marriage proposal. The summer of 1497 was indeed a high point in Queen Isabella's personal life. Three of her children were either already married or engaged, and a fourth, Catherine, was soon betrothed to the heir of England. All that was left was Princess Maria, and the Queen of Castile was confident that in no time at all, she'd find a perfect strategic match. Her dynastic legacy was nearly complete. But then, tragedy struck. In October 1497, on the eve of Princess Isabel's wedding, Prince Juan died of an unknown illness. The heir to Castile was once again Princess Isabel. But the implications were even more significant. Once Princess Isabel produced an heir with King Manuel of Portugal, that child would inherit two growing empires. The stage was set for Queen Isabella's grandchild to rule half the known world. The thought of this wasn't lost on Queen Isabella. In fact, it became her only source of solace when tragedy struck the family once more. In August 1498, Princess Isabel died giving birth to her son, Miguel. In less than a year, the queen's two eldest children had died. Though Queen Isabella surely mourned their deaths as any mother would, she also knew as queen that in her grandson was the future of the family. 
she was going to see fit that he was ready to rule over more land and people than any in history. She was going to raise Miguel as if he were her own son. But in July 1500, Miguel died in Isabella's arms a month before his second birthday. The death of the infant Miguel meant that Queen Isabella's heir was now her daughter, Princess Joanna. In 1502, Joanna, who was living in present-day Belgium, was recalled to Castile. The queen needed to educate her daughter on the intricacies of governing an ever-expanding kingdom. Unfortunately, Isabella, now in her 50s, was physically, mentally, and emotionally drained. According to Downey, Isabella suffered periods of debilitating fatigue, chills and fevers, and had some unspecified internal ailment, possibly cancer. Because of her rapidly declining health, Isabella was unable to fully grasp that her heir, Joanna, was in an abusive marriage. When it became apparent that Joanna might inherit the kingdom, her husband, Philip, Duke of Burgundy, angled for ways to usurp her. He began to psychologically terrorize his wife, including stripping their children from her care and bribing her servants to be more loyal to him. Early in her reign, Queen Isabella probably wouldn't have tolerated such blatant acts of disrespect, especially from a future king consort. However, because of her declining health, all Isabella was able to do was try and influence Philip to be more attentive to his wife. Philip arrogantly ignored her. By 1504, Isabella was practically unable to rule and retreated from public life. In October, she became bedridden. As news trickled through Castile that the queen was near death, Castilian noblemen dreaded what might become of the kingdom. The truth was, nobody in Castile liked King Ferdinand. For years, he was busy fighting wars in Naples, and because of the psychological abuse that Joanna had endured, many believed she was unfit to succeed such a strong queen-like mother. For the first time in 30 years, there was genuine fear throughout the land. And it seems that Isabella was in fear of the future as well. She asked Ferdinand to make her one final promise, not to remarry. For the last decade, she had done all she could to protect her line of succession. If Ferdinand were to remarry, it could undo everything and leave her remaining children with nothing. Ferdinand agreed. On November 26, 1504, 53-year-old Queen Isabella died. Her final act was performing the sign of the cross. Unlike the succession chaos that followed the death of King Enrique IV, Isabella made it abundantly clear that Joanna was to rule Castile. And if Joanna were unable to rule, the crown would go to Joanna's son, Prince Charles. Ferdinand was allowed to act as Charles's regent. Neither Ferdinand nor Philip, Duke of Burgundy, were happy with Isabella's final wishes. They went to great lengths to negate her decrees. Ferdinand broke his promise to Isabella and remarried within a year of her death. He hoped to produce a male heir and usurp the Castilian throne from his daughter. 
unfortunately, the only baby he had with his second wife died hours after being born. Worse yet for him, Ferdinand's reputation in Castile quickly soured for dishonoring Isabella. He was forced to stay in Aragon for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, Philip returned to Castile in 1506 and did all he could to paint Joanna as mentally unstable. Sadly, to some extent, the propaganda campaign worked. History now remembers her as Joanna the Mad. But despite his best efforts, Philip died before ever obtaining power in Castile. In September 1506, during a night of heavy drinking, Philip was suddenly struck with a stomach illness. Some believe he quite literally partied to death. In 1516, Joanna's son Charles became co-monarch of Castile and Aragon. Though Joanna would remain queen for decades, Charles was acting regent. He became the first official king of a unified Spain. In the years that followed, he would also become king of Germany and Italy and Holy Roman Emperor. Charles V's empire became one of the first on which the sun never set. Most importantly, though, Charles was a devoted Catholic. And during much of his reign, he fought against the Protestant Reformation, for which his grandmother Isabella would have been proud. When Queen Isabella died in 1504, her death was mourned by many throughout the peninsula and Europe. The Italian courtier Baldessari Castiglione wrote, Unless the people of Spain have all conspired to lie in praising her, there has not been in our time a more shining example of true goodness, of the greatness of spirit, of prudence, of piety, in short, of every virtue, than Queen Isabella. Much of Castiglione's statement rings true. From the day she was born, Isabella was never seriously considered for a role in power. Tradition would never have allowed it. But she refused to let societal norms dictate her life. After years of conflict with her half-brother, she seized power for herself. And she made sure that her scheming husband couldn't take it away from her. What resulted was a 30-year reign that few European monarchs could dream of. She reconquered Granada, and her financing of a small expedition opened the door to a whole new world. She turned the relatively small kingdom of Castile into a Spanish empire. Of course, not everyone would agree with Castiglione. It's hard to imagine that the Iberian Jews who were forced to leave their ancestral homes wept over Isabella's death, or the many victims of the Spanish Inquisition. The Inquisition continued for another 300 years, finally ending in 1834. And although new evidence has recently shown that it perhaps wasn't as bloody as initially believed, the average death toll is around 4,000, it was still an act of religious genocide. And Isabella was its leading architect. For better or for worse, no other European ruler, man or woman, has had a more lasting impact on world history than Queen Isabella I 
of Castile. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll go back across the English Channel and dive into the life and reign of Mary I of England. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Dictators for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Dictators on Spotify, just open the app and type Dictators in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Dictators was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher, and stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Listeners, you don't want to miss Incredible Feats, the all-new Spotify original from Parcast. Host Dan Cummins free-falls straight into the weirdest, wildest achievements of all time. New episodes air every weekday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.